It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Log Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome again to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. We come to you through four media channels, here at Blog Talk Radio, through our online newsletters, via our magazine, and now video channel. They are now all available to you at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Each month, we touch more than one million small business leaders through our various channels. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are carefully chosen for their expertise or experience. They do not pay to be on this program, but rather our editors and readers identify them. We also identify the topics of possible interest for our audiences. If you have any suggestions or particular topics you want us to cover, please email us at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Tonight's program, like all our efforts, have a wide diversity of guests talking about the topics you want to hear. Our first guest is Tom Peterson. Tom, welcome to the program. Hi, Don. Thank you for having me. Well, Tom, as we ask... Uh, that was a mistake made by the engineer. Uh, but uh, the program today is very much uh, something that I think all of you will really enjoy. Our first guest is, is, is William Cohen, who's written a very interesting book about uh, Peter Drucker and his principles. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Don. Well, I'm very happy. Now we've gotten all those glitches out of the way. Um, let's uh, first ask you, like we ask all our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> well, my wife says if you ask me a question like that, you may be sorry about it. But I am uh, currently I'm the president of a, of a university called the California Institute of Advanced Management. And frankly, we, we teach 
Peter Drucker's principles. So it fits right in line with the book, uh, you know, The Practical Drucker. And that occupies really all of my time, sometimes I think 24-7. What does your wife think? Uh, she thinks I ought to relax in my old age and do something different, although I'm still extremely interested in physical things. I, I like to work out. I like karate. I like a lot of things like that. But uh, uh, sometimes she, she's, by the way, is a clinical psychologist, so she keeps me fairly sane. And she's working also. Oh, well, um, let's first talk about Peter Drucker. Um, some of, some people in our audience might not be as aware of him as you and I are. Yeah, he was a, a really a, a, a great genius who, uh, who uh, left us and passed away uh, uh, some years ago. And Peter is known as the father of modern management, and the reason being that he practically created the field himself, and not only in for corporations and not only for for uh, uh, nonprofits, but also for small business. In fact, he uh, actually wrote a book on entrepreneurship uh, back in the mid '80s and taught it in New York uh, earlier than that, back in the '50s. And um, he also. Um was first, if I recall correctly, to identify some of the things that the Japanese did that we should bring over to the United States. Yeah, and vice versa as well. I mean, he was a great favorite of the Japanese. I've, I've had Japanese guests at various times, and they always are, are very, very respectful about uh, Peter Drucker. But uh, so also the, the Chinese, by the way, very much in Asia. In fact, we are affiliated with the Peter Drucker Academies of China and Hong Kong. And uh, 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 Peter, when he was alive, uh, allowed the school to, in Hong Kong or, and China to use his name. And so it, uh, they have around 50,000 graduates there. And so it's really amazing. And Peter was a, a, a absolutely a wonderful individual. Uh, I think, Don, you and I both were his students. And I had the great good fortune to, be in, uh, to get my doctorate under him at uh, Claremont uh, Graduate School, which is about 30 miles down the road from where I speak out here in Pasadena in California. Well, I I had uh, the last class that he taught at NYU. I was a member of it, and uh, I can tell you that uh, people uh, came into the class that weren't signed up for it just to listen to him. And a, a truly amazing and personal individual. I mean, you know, you run into some geniuses, but this is a guy that was in the class with a guy like Einstein or. Uh, you know, or Freud, or any any big, really, any, maybe they come along once in a hundred years. But this particular genius devoted himself to management, and this particular genius was a was an individual that you could talk to, and interface with, and he knew his students and wanted to help his students. And uh, long after I graduated, until almost before his death, we were still in contact by telephone and 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 different means. We had lunch together. I mean, really a, a, an amazing individual. I was very, very honored and very, very fortunate to have had him as my, as my professor. Well, now let's talk about your book. Uh, uh, tell the audience the title and why, why it has a, a relevance to small business. Well, first, the title is The Practical Drucker. In fact, someone asked me, they said, uh, you mean the Drucker was impractical? I said, no, 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 hardly, not at all. But, you know, Drucker voted, he died when he was almost 96 years old. 
and he devoted his entire life to management and the different various concepts. And he, he started out uh, early enough, really early as a matter of fact, and got some practical experience, got a degree, escaped from, uh, uh, actually he was an Austrian, but he was in Germany when Hitler came to power, escaped from, from Germany, came, to the United, came first to England, and then to the United States. And from then on, devoted his entire life, as I said, to writing. He wrote 39 books while he was alive, and hundreds and hundreds of articles. And uh, really, uh, amazingly, now, until probably the mid-'80s, everyone thought that he was, you know, a big company man, a big corporate, corporate man, because he was consulting for major corporations. And no one knew that he had actually uh, done all this work, which he had with the small business and entrepreneurship. But he wrote a book about that time, and he actually taught for NYU. He taught uh, 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 this, the small business back in the 1950s, maybe one of the first to really to do this. So now the book itself, The Practical Drucker, you know, as I mentioned, someone said, is, why, is, was Drucker impractical? No. But he, he lived for such a long period and wrote on so many different topics in, from marketing to management to motivation to you name it, something, anything to do with management he was involved with. And he wrote on so many things that he wrote what to do. He didn't always write how to do these things that he recommended. Many major corporations, many entrepreneurs, many startups of all sorts. In fact, out here in California, Rick Warren, who started the Saddleback uh, uh, Churches, he did that with the help of Peter Drucker. So uh, his, his, what he, his, the wisdom that he taught is applicable in every single area that we do, every function of business. In fact, he said the basic things of any business are simply two things, innovation and marketing. And those are two essentials for anyone that would have a small business or a small business that would like to be a large business. Well, so, so having said that, and since our audience is small business, what are some of the essentials that um, Drucker well, um, Recommended. Go ahead. Well, some of them really, really amazing to me. I mean, that really incredible when you think about them. Because, you know, he first he was one of the first to write and say that marketing and sales were not the same, and if you confuse them, you could get yourself in a lot of trouble. And what he was really talking about that selling was face to face usually, or in other ways, but marketing was that sort of at, at the strategic level. But he went one further, and something that's even breakthrough even today, or I find it so. And that is, he, say, he said this, he said, if marketing is done perfectly, then selling it should be unnecessary. Well, of course, marketing is never done perfectly, and selling is always necessary. But this was still a strange statement to make uh, about being unnecessary. And I, and, but then he said something even more peculiar. He said that selling and marketing are not only not complementary, but they could be adversarial. Now, that's sort of a what-to-do things. And it took me some years to, to unravel this thing, exactly what he was talking about. But what he was talking about is this. If you don't spend your time thinking strategically first in a small business, or any business for that matter, and you focus immediately on selling something, you're trying to do something, and you may be a great salesperson, but you will never do as well as you could as if you hit the right market because you spent your time understanding the market and what the customer valued, because the, what the customer values and what we value are not always the same thing. So if you did that strategic stuff, the marketing part, then it made the selling so much easier that even if you're a great salesperson, 
you would be able to sell much, much more and much, much better. Or if you had salespeople working for you, they would do a much, much greater job. So here's a very simple thing. I mean, all we have to do is think ahead of time and spend the time ahead of time, take the time to get it right and get our marketing right. And if we get our marketing right, our sales will be far, far better and far, far righter. Wow. I've heard that from from him and from other people. Well, I'm mouthing that, and I think that's very important. Um, uh, companies sometimes uh, don't look at the end at the overall uh, uh, strategy, and uh, even to the point of what's the end game, and uh, they just plunge and plow in. Uh, we see that a lot of time with these young entrepreneurs. Keep on going. Please continue. Oh, There's okay, another sure. Well, you know, I, I remember in class when I, you know, as a student, and sometimes we had free discussions, and someone asked him how he was able to a, to predict the future so easily. And he, you had a tremendous sense of humor, by the way. I don't mean he cracked jokes or things like that, but he he just did. I mean, he said he paused, and then he said, "I listen," and then he said to myself. Of course, we all laughed, and that was a joke. But what he said was, well, I don't bring, you know, as a, as a consultant, he said, I don't bring my knowledge so much to any situation as my ignorance. And we were all wondering what he was talking about. And I finally figured that out, too, and that is that, you know, if you bring your ignorance to a situation, you don't just come on and, and with a lot of ideas. You have to ask questions so you can understand fully and then if you understand this correctly, you can do almost anything at any level for a small business or a large business. And so what he identified was, well, first you ought to identify the central problem or the central issue. What's the, what is the central issue that is in this, whatever the situation might be? He said, and then I would look and, and think about the, the, those factors that are relevant to that central issue. Because they might be anything. I might not understand them. It might be anything. And after I did that, then I could ask myself, well, what are different alternatives considering this, trying to solve this central issue or make a decision or solve the central problem? And considering all these relevant factors, I would think of different alternatives. Now, he went and that eventually would lead to a decision or a recommendation to a client. And one of the you know, most famous things they talk about, of course, is not a small business because Jack Welch, who you know? Who uh, you know? The legendary CEO, maybe of the of this last century. Some people call him, uh, you know, of, of John Electric. I mean, he credits Drucker with, with with all the great things that he did during his tenure. And he said Drucker came in very early, and simply asked questions. And one of the questions he asked it was, uh, you know, Jack Welch. He asked him, if there you've got all GE has got all these businesses, if you had your druthers, if you had your choices about what to do, which businesses would you keep and which would you get rid of? And uh, I don't know what Jack Welch answered, but he gave some kind of an answer. And, and then Drucker asked his second question, and he said, okay, he said, now what are you going to do about it? And Jack Welch said what he did about it was he decided that it wasn't profitability alone as far as all these different businesses that, that General Electric was involved in. It was what was the opportunity, what were the opportunities for, the, for a company for the future for all these different businesses. Now, that's true for all businesses. 
If we're a small company, it's even more important because we have limited resources. We can't put them everywhere. So he came up with a criteria that if one of General Electric's businesses could not, is it was not number one or could not become number one or number two, then he decided to sell it, to get rid of it, or to liquidate it. And to take the monies that he saved by liquidating those businesses and put them into those businesses that did have that, that opportunity to succeed. And Jack Welch says those two quit that, that initial session with Drucker and just that very simple thing was what caused him to increase the size of that corporation by I don't know how many, by, I think they, when he left it was $450 billion. Who knows? A lot of money anyway. We can do the same with any business. And that was one of the things that fascinated me with so many of Drucker's recommendations and so many of the insights that we can apply to any kind of business. He came in his book on entrepreneurship, for example, he came up with the idea that, you know, you don't have to be first with a service or a product. There are advantages to being first. There are advantages and disadvantages to being second. And there are advantages and disadvantages to being last or the last one in. But in every case, you have to take advantage of those things that, may, that are strengths and, 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 and make the other things irrelevant. Drucker had a lot of great insights for us. Or one, you know, another one I'll throw out here, Don, if I could, and that is on hiring. He said it's a mistake to hire a guy to avoid weakness. Everybody has weaknesses. He said what you want to do is staff for strength. If an individual has great strength in an area you need, who cares, for example, if, he's a, if he is an incredible marketer, who cares whether he's good in accounting? You can hire an accountant to do that. What he's accounting, that doesn't necessarily make any difference, or versa visa. If, you know, everyone should be interested in marketing, but if you're interested in having a great financial person or a great accountant, who cares if he's not as good as something else? You can, you can find someone else to do that specialist job. Like I said, Drucker uh, was amazing in what he could do. So what I've, what I've tried to do in the, in the book, The Practical Drucker, is I, I, actually it's, it's got 40 chapters, and in every one of them I'm discussing different areas and the, the things that Drucker said what to do and trying to show how we can apply these. Of course, everyone has to apply it to their own organization because all of our companies are different and all of the things we're trying to do in our industries all different. But we can apply these universal truths, and, it, and it's amazing what we can what we come out with. I don't know if we can build a $450 million, billion-dollar business like uh, like uh, Jack Welch did, but maybe we can. Who's to say not? Well, let me, um, uh, again, the name of your book is The, Pract uh, the Practical Dr Drucker. But let me ask you a question. What would he make of today's, what do you think he would make of today's Internet world? Well, he, you know, he lived uh, until 2005, and so he saw the Internet, and he saw the potential uh, in marketing in a lot of different areas. Drucker himself was personally interested in executive education. This is what really drove him in every single case. He really was interested in, in uh, and, he, and he thought it was wrong to uh, uh, just hire someone and because they went to a great school. He thought they ought to be educated wherever they went. And that the and this was an, an important aspect. Now the reason I mentioned that and you mentioned the internet is one of the uh, articles that Drucker wrote I think was for Fortune magazine before he long before he died 
was that the future of executive education was on the Internet. Now, uh, and then we've seen this growth. I mean, up until uh, fairly recently, it was growing at 15 to 20% per year. Now, my school, for example, we don't teach in the internet, Internet yet. In other words, we teach Drucker, we teach a lot of this, but we're out here in the Los Angeles area. And, uh, and we, uh, um, we, we, do, we have what we call a blended program so that we get our people through a lot quicker than in most schools. We've tried to do all the, the bad things and make nothing but the good things. But we don't What's teach them purely. It's called the California Institute of Advanced Management, and it's based on Drucker. We have his pictures all over the place here. In fact, when I had one son here that uh, visited, he saw so many pictures, and he said, well, you know, it looked like a sect or something. I said, well, no, we just want to know that, that Drucker really drives us. His ethics, were, uh, by the way, were incredible. I mean, he said, you know, a leader can make a lot of mistakes, and people will forgive him or her. But except one, and that's his, his integrity. So that's critically important. And he spent a lot of thinking about that as well. But yet Drucker would have uh, Drucker recognized the onset of the Internet and all the advantages that it had. And although he did not like, not himself, he, again, he dealt with what to do rather than how to do it, but he wrote greatly about education and how it should be the future of executive education. Sure, there's a, a lot of things you cannot do uh, on the uh, you know on the internet. I mean, socialization among different people is very very difficult in a classroom. But for executives that are uh, with with time limitations, he thought that was the future. Um, Bill, we'd love love for you to come back and talk more on that subject. We have our next guest on the line, and I know you have to go. Um, so uh, you can either stay with us or go. But I want to uh, bring in our next guest. But before I do, the name of your book again and how you can get it? It's The Practical Drucker. should be able to get it at bookstores or for the Amazon or one of the other booksellers. If you want to contact me personally or anything, it's www, and I'll give you my school. It's www.gociam.org. That is G-O-C-I-A-M.org. And uh, thank you, Don, very much for having me. I really enjoy talking with you. Well, I hope you'll come back again and talk about uh, uh, executive education uh, as it pertains to small business. I'll be very, very happy to do that. In fact, that's the title of our degree. We offer one degree only, the MBA in Executive Management and Entrepreneurship. I mean, it's all one sentence, not two different subjects. And so, uh, yeah, I'll be delighted to do that. Okay, in the new year. And have a In great the new holiday. year, absolutely. Absolutely. You bet. Our next guest I, I wel- we welcome is Jason Weisenthal. He's founder of uh, Wal- Walman- Wall Monkeys. Jason, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, Jason, we, we start off every uh, um, uh, guest by asking them a little bit about themselves personally and how they got to where they are now and why they're on the program. Uh, so, Jason, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, my background before this current business, um, I was in retail for about 14 years in the shoe business. And um, is this live, Don, right now? I'm sorry. Yes, it is live radio. You're going okay, out I didn't live. know if we were uh, doing a warm-up. Um, so my previous career was in retail in the shoe business, which was totally different from the Internet. 
and um, I grew it into quite a nice business and actually got a little bit bored with the everyday. So I was looking around for other opportunities, and um, that was right around when Fathead started to become popular. I'm not sure if you know Fathead. They make the wall decals of all the sports figures and famous people. You can't see a sporting event today without seeing that that commercial. Right. So uh, when I saw the fathead, the fatheads everywhere, I thought that people might want to do pictures of their own kids playing sports instead of putting Derek Jeter on the wall or A-Rod, something like that. And I began to investigate the printers and the equipment and what would be needed to, uh, you know, see see if that could happen. No one no one was doing it at the time. And uh, I became obsessed with it, and it w- seemed like something that could be done. So I purchased the printer and, you know, put all the pieces in place. I built the website, you know, totally custom and, you know, went where no one else had gone before, so to speak. Uh, and that was the beginning of the business. Well, how long have you been in business? Wall Monkeys has been around for five years. Um, November was our fifth year. Um, we really didn't start to grow until about the past two years. So really, you know, I really say Wall Monkeys has been around for for the past two years. Um, the first couple years, we, we struggled, and I still had the shoe business. I hadn't sold it yet, and it was kind of a hobby. Um, the past two years, we've had some really great growth, and, you know, now it's uh, a thriving, growing small business. Well, what have you learned that you could pass on to our audience of small business people? That's a really broad question, but um, what have I learned? Um, Well, to do your research before you get started and then not be afraid to, you know, follow your dream and be persistent. You know, I wanted to do this, and I I did it. And, you know, the way I initially started with the custom work um, wasn't very successful, but I kept trying different angles, and now we have the world's largest, collection of images um, and it was a lot of zigging and zagging and trial and error and perseverance to find the the proper angle and niche to uh, to succeed so I guess the to, to sum it up you know it, the first thing is you know take the risk and do it and the second thing is to be be persistent because um, your first try might not succeed okay um. Yeah, five. They say if you survive five years, your company uh, has a good chance of being around for a while. Uh, what are you are you doing for follow-on? Um, explain what exactly do you mean by follow-on, Don? Uh, do you have new products uh, coming on? Um, How do you keep yourself we, fresh? Well, uh, we we are constantly coming up with new ideas. Um, recently we made a deal with National Geographic. Um, we got about 30,000 new images from National Geographic that are, you know, all unique and breathtaking. Um, we're going after different markets. Right now we're going heavily into business to business. There's lots of businesses that we're, we're serving their needs for, whether it's seasonal displays or trade show graphics. Um, and just our, our website, selling it to more sales channels, optimizing our website, creating better data feeds. Um, I mean, it's never-ending. Social media, it's just 
um, you could work 24 hours a day and, and have fun making people aware of our company. Well, you, you said something. Are you having fun now? Oh, I, I've never had more fun in my life. I absolutely love what I do. I love our product, our business. The 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 opportunities are endless. When it, you know, when I was in retail, everyone had to walk in the same front door, and no matter how well I executed, fifteen percent seemed to be about the most we grew in a year. And in this business, we can make I can make a decision, or my employees, my group can implement a strategy, and we could see dramatic growth literally within hours or within days. Um, it's just it's fantastic. It's fun. I can't stress how much fun I'm having. Well, I've, uh, I've had a lot of entrepreneurs on, but you sure sound as if you're really enjoying yourself. I am. We have, you know, we I have great employees. We have a good business model. Um, it's there's nothing to not have fun with right now. Um, you know, we're, it's a growing business. There's still lots of things that are untapped. You know, our, my biggest obstacle each day, and it's something I continue to talk about with my, you know, my, my key employees, um, is to focus on what's most important right now. What will make us the most money right now, or what is what will have the biggest impact on the business? Because I can make a list a mile long which is great. I mean, there's never a dull moment. Okay. Um, what's, uh, what's your website address? It's, it's wallmonkeys.com, W-A-L-L-M-O-N-K-E-Y-S.com. Okay. Uh, well, we have our next guest ready to come on board. Uh, if you had to give one uh, piece of advice to a would-be uh, to a, a small business leader, what would it be? Follow your gut instincts, and um, if at all possible, do not take on investors. Um, okay. Be in control. Be in control of your destiny. Um, you know, don't don't have to run ideas or big big decisions by other people. You know, being that's why you. That's that's the reason you're an entrepreneur is to control your own destiny and make your own decisions. Okay, uh, Jason, thank you for coming on tonight and talking about it. Uh, I I always enjoy it when I find that uh, I hear such an enthusiasm as we heard tonight. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, and come again. We'll talk to you in the new year. Okay. All right. Have a great night, Don. You too. Our next guest is John Hasman of Armstrong Teasdale, and we invited him on the program because uh, uh, tomorrow is going. There's going to be demonstrations, um, uh, which we'll get into. But uh, John, are you with us? I am, Don. I'm here. Welcome, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, um, uh, I'm so glad. Um, uh, someone brought us brought you to our attention. Um, uh, tomorrow, uh, there's going to there's going to be demonstrations in front of uh, various uh, um, uh, uh, franchises about a living wage, and uh, you're you're an expert in in, ha- in handling uh, 
negative things. And we want to talk about that, but we always ask our guests first to tell a little bit about themselves, uh, who they are, and just a little bit about yourself. Great, I'd be happy to do that. I'm a, I am a labor lawyer, so I, I focus my my legal practice on representing companies in their labor and employment matters. I grew up in northern New Jersey in a small town called Chatham, uh, moved to Louisville, Kentucky in high school, and ended up going to St. Louis University where I met my better half, my lovely wife Amy, went to law school at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and now I live back in St. Louis, and we have three beautiful children. So you may hear one in the background, so I hope you don't. <laughs> well, um, we'll welcome him or her to the show. Uh, now, um, I invited you on because uh, small business in particular uh, fa- often face negative things, mm-hmm. uh, lawsuits from employee- employees, et cetera. Um, uh, tomorrow um, there are going to be demonstrations. Uh, can you give a, 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 our audience some thoughts on uh, how, to, how to handle uh, situ- demonstrations, things like that? Uh, Absolutely. The floor is yours. Thank you, Don. Well, and the plan tomorrow, according to the organizers of these demonstrations, and according to their press releases, these are to take place in over 100 cities across the United States, is to have employees at primarily fast food restaurants but other small businesses as well actually walk out on strike and have demonstrations at those facilities trying to bring awareness and get those employers to raise those wages which are usually at the minimum wage or slightly above to raise those wages up to as much as fifteen dollars an hour and so when faced with that These small businesses, whether it be a restaurant or someone else, needs to understand first and foremost that those employees, even if they're not represented by a union, do have a federal right to strike. So they want to be careful not to do anything to interfere with that exercise of that federal right because then they could find themselves facing federal charges for doing so. Uh, They don't want to say anything incorrect to restrain or coerce those employees. And they want to be careful what they say in the media as well. We all know now, the days, that's almost as important as what you actually do, what you say about it. You know, the the first thing you see, if if they can get it, they want that store manager or that business owner out there screaming at people so they can put it up on YouTube and try to cause them even more problems. So the, the first piece of advice I have is, Make sure you understand your legal obligations, not to interfere with their protected right to strike. Secondly, is to operate as close to business as usual as you can. History has shown that these strikes usually are one-day strikes. The demonstrations usually are either at the morning rush or the lunchtime rush, and then they're gone. So we don't want to overreact to these things They haven't been multi-day strikes. They haven't been multi-day demonstrations. Try to take the high road and operate as close to business as usual as you can. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, If my staff walks out and Mm -hmm. is out out for two hours, am I legally obliged to pay them for those two hours that they're they're not working? No, Uh, unless they had put in for 
you had a, a PTO, a paid time off policy or vacation plan, and they had submitted a request to be off, then yes, you would pay them. But otherwise, if they withhold their labor, which is essentially striking, you are not obligated to pay them for not working. You can't retaliate against them for walking out in an effort to protest and get higher wages, but but you're not obligated to pay them to do it, if that answers your question. Well, it was a question that was brought up today at a meeting I attended, and I was I said I know just the man to ask tonight. <laughs> but let me go. Let's leave that aside for a moment. Sure. Let's let's talk. Small businesses are vulnerable to a lot of a lot of different. Uh, actions by their employees, uh, harassment, mm-hmm. um, pay. What are some of the safeguards that a small business can put in place uh, to prevent uh, an, uh, an employee uh, from from suing? You can't have prevent them from it, but reduce the chances. That, that, you're absolutely right. We we can do all the right things, but at the end of the day, you still can't stop somebody from filing a charge or filing a lawsuit. We can posture ourselves in the best position we can to defend against those things and hopefully if we have happy employees those aren't people who are going to want to bring actions whether that's an administrative charge at a state or federal agency or a lawsuit so some of the the good hr practices that you've probably seen or your guests know about as far as open door policies having somebody that they can go to with questions and concerns, whether that be harassment that they're experiencing on the job that they want to see stopped. If they know who it is they can go to and that person is willing to listen, and that's different than just saying, tell me what you want to hear, but if they actually see that that person is listening to them and is going to take some kind of action, that's a workplace that's generally going to see fewer complaints, fewer lawsuits, from their employees. That doesn't always have to be in a formal HR role. You know, many small businesses can't afford to have a separate HR department. The bigger they get, sometimes they're able to do that. But as long as the employees understand who it is they can go to, and that person doesn't just sit back and wait to hear from the employees, but occasionally goes around and solicits from them how the work environment is, what challenges they're facing, and what problems they have that they want to see addressed, that outreach in and of itself will go a long way in helping prevent lawsuits or basically disgruntled employees. You know, even if it's not the lawsuit, it may be a current or a former employee that gets on Twitter or gets on Facebook or blogs about how much they hate their work environment. And we want to keep that down as well, even though it's not in a formal legal setting. Well, let's talk about that. I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about um, if, some, if an employee um, uh, twitters about the company, what can the company do about that? Well, you're going to love this. It's the typical legal lawyer answer. It all depends. Um, and, and and so if 
you know, the, the National Labor Relations Board, which is the federal agency I began my career with, I, I, I was a field attorney with the NLRB here in St. Louis for four years. That federal agency oversees not only labor relations in this country, but the right to engage in protected concerted activity. And, and they have taken the position over the last several years that engaging in workplace discussions on social media can be protected by the National Labor Relations Act. So if somebody tweets, my supervisor is a big jerk, and their Twitter followers happen to be some of their fellow coworkers, and those coworkers reply back in a tweet that, yes, you're right, we should do something about this. Well, now you've got employees engaged in a discussion about their workplace, and that's protected activity under the National Labor Relations Act, according to the agency today. And so it would potentially subject that employer to liability under that statute were you to discipline that person. Um, we also have to be careful on what social media policies we put into place. The National Labor Relations Board is taking a very hard look at those policies. They've gone after some of the big hitters out there like Walmart and others for their social media policies. So we can restrict it a little bit. Um, you know, they, we can restrict their ability to say anything untrue about the company, malicious about the company or the supervisors. We can make sure we're safeguarding our trademark and, and other copyrighted information that's out there. You know, if it's in the healthcare industry, you can obviously protect any patient information that gets tweeted or posted on Facebook. You can stop that type of thing. But simply somebody going out there and saying they don't like where they work, that could potentially be protected activity. It depends on whether their coworkers are are part of that online discussion or not. But if if some if an employee goes out and uh, blabs a company secret, mm-hmm. um, uh, are there grounds then for for that person to be disciplined? Absolutely. If a, if a lawyer in my law firm went out on Twitter and violated the attorney-client privilege and and damaged one of our clients by doing so, that attorney would no longer be with our law firm. You know, it's the same thing in your business. If you have confidential trade secret information and they put that information out on the Internet and you have a policy against that, obviously, yes, that is not going to be protected conduct, and that is something you could take action for. But you have to have it written, someone told me. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. No, just enough law to be dangerous. That's the best uh, kind. (laughs) But but you should have a written, uh, uh, something written about, uh, going out on social media. Would that be correct? It's a great idea, just in a general sense, to to lay out the expectations for your workforce, whether that be what's permissible on social media, what your policy is on harassment, what your whatever your policies are that are going to govern your company, 
it's always a good idea to set those out in writing and provide them to your workforce so that everybody's clear as to what the expectations are. When you're getting into the realm of social media and policies of that nature, it's probably a good idea to have your lawyer look it over and make sure you're on good ground because an unlawful policy isn't worth the paper it's written on. But it's always a good idea to make sure your expectations are set forth in writing. Get your employees to sign a copy of it. Give them a copy of the signed policy, and you keep one in your file for them. Okay. Let me go to another subject. Um, uh, um, In small small businesses, uh, a bad employee or employee that's... um, uh, uh, is is not getting along well with other people. Um, uh, I ran into a situation the other day where uh, an employee was very valuable, but he was a pain in the butt. Sure. Um, how do you handle such a person? Um, uh, what's the best way uh, to handle such a person if you decide he's he or she is valuable but not worth the trouble? Boy, I wish I had Joe Torrey, the former manager of the Yankees, on right now. He he seemed like he was the master at dealing with that, didn't he? He was the very valuable players, a lot of whom were probably a big pain in the you-know-what. Um, and, and really that becomes about managing personalities, and, and that's where you've got to be able to find a way to either coach that person in a way that gets them to coexist with their coworkers or even – the owner of the company sometimes can't stand their best performer. Um, and that may be because that best performer thinks they're more valuable than the owner. And you can either manage that person and get them to understand their role in the organization and how everyone is just as valuable as everybody else, or you need to find somebody that you can get in that you think can perform equally or close to as well. Um, that's that's the real trick is how do you motivate that person in a way that gets them to play as part of the team and not just thumb their nose at everybody else and be a be a jerk about it it's it's tough <laughs> there's, there's no easy answer to that one managing personalities is something we all deal with i think on a day-to-day basis um our next guest is going to talk about security um, do you have time to s- stay on and listen and perhaps contribute? Sure. Okay. Um, I'm I'm going to bring in Mark Stanislav, secu- who calls himself the security ev- evangelist for uh, Duo Security. Mark, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. Thank We've you been for talking me, with John Hasman about some legal side of it, and now we're going to talk about the security side of it, of small business. But we always ask our guests first to say a little bit, tell us a little bit about themselves, uh, their personal sure. selves. Sure. So my, uh, my current title, like you said, is Security Evangelist for Duo Security. Uh, my background prior to joining uh, Duo Security's team was uh, kind of a mixture of security uh, systems administration, web application development, and then just kind of overall systems administration, security, policy, um, and helping teams really kind of align 
compliance regulations and kind of the other things that hang over a lot of companies' heads in, in terms of um, best practices for security. And that's been what I've, or that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I also had a, a big focus on education in information security and network and IT administration. And with dual security, you know, I, my, my real role here for them is uh, helping to focus on growing companies with security rather than kind of hacking security on, which I think rings home for a lot of small businesses, which often don't have the time or money or resources to really build security into their uh, company. Well, we're talking about security of their IT systems, uh, and the, uh, the, the, which is the backbone now of just about any business. So, um, what are the, what what are the uh, the basic things that a small business should know about security? Uh, that's great. And so, with any any small business, there's a, there's kind of a shocking reality where, if you take any large enterprise and let's say they get breached, their customers' data gets spilled into the internet, really nothing's going to happen to them and they're going to have a lawyer uh, team that's going to defend them. They're going to have PR teams that are going to defend them. A small business doesn't have the same kind of leverage where that they can maybe survive a breach. And what we have to focus on for small businesses are what can we do to protect them from actually getting to the point where they have to respond to a breach. Um, certainly things like antiviruses have been around for a number of years, you know, your, your generic firewalls. Uh, and what Duo Security brings to the table is protecting their authentication. So whether you log into your email account, you log into a file server, or you log into some sort of application that maybe uh, supports your business point-of-sale system, uh, that's where Duo Security falls in because we see constantly passwords getting stolen, passwords getting fished from uh, you know, an email attempt from some hacker in China, and this is where Duo Security comes in to protect those logins from people that would otherwise want to cause you harm. Okay. Uh, you, you brought up an issue about uh, d downloading the customer information. Uh, I'd like to go ask John a question. I don't know if it fits his expertise, but what legally, what happens to a company that has a breach? You are correct to say you didn't know if it was within my expertise. That is outside of them, and, and I'm smart enough to know when I'm outside my my area there. I I could not speak intelligently about that. I apologize. No, I just thought it. it, it I, I just thought it might be uh, uh, something. Uh, but let me ask you, John, then this question: If mm -hmm. um, if an employee somehow or other uh, does a stupid thing and allows it in, um, uh, I've heard of a couple instances where they're fired. Is, that is not a firing offense, am I well, correct? Well, being, being stupid may not be a fireable offense, but it may still be the right decision to let that person go if they were negligent. Um, if, you're, if you suspect that maybe it was malicious on their part, they wanted to, to see the company damaged, you would obviously want to investigate it as much as you could to find out the intent of what they did. You know, if they <clears throat> were sitting at their computer and got an email from an old college friend and clicked on the link that every IT company has told us never to click on, but they did it anyway, um, their negligence, if it caused enough damage to the company, may be enough 
to where the business owner wants to say, I'm sorry, that's just uh, unacceptable and you need to go. You know, in most states that are employment at will, you don't need a good reason to let somebody go. You don't even need to have a reason. So unless they have an employment contract or a collective bargaining agreement that provides that they can only be let go for good cause or just cause, it's probably going to be enough, uh, even if it was just an honest mistake on their part. Okay. Mark, let's get back. Uh, across my desk today came a, a, a story about that there's a new virus out that uh, if you click on it and get the virus, uh, it locks up your files, and then they demand ransom to unencrypt it. Um, is that is that something that uh, you're aware of and have uh, seen happen? And what does a company do in a case like that? Yeah, so I think you're referencing uh, what's called CryptoLocker. Yes. And yes, great. Uh, so CryptoLocker is this nefarious way that attackers are actually using proactive security against companies. So they're taking the core files, whether that's a database or a financial spreadsheet or some other really important piece of data, and actually encrypting that in the same way that any of us would probably encrypt our data, but actually holding it ransom, like you said. Um, and we're, we're to the point where I think I've seen something like $500 bounties to actually unencrypt that data. And the scary part of this whole thing is um, we are seeing people pay that, that bounty. They're paying it in Bitcoin, I was told. Uh, I believe that I believe that is one option. You know, anything anything where you have a company that is kind of being held by ransom by this nefarious third party. Um, you know, Bitcoin is one of those crypto-based currencies that are very popular right now for good and kind of weird reasons, like Silk Road, which we heard about uh, that got shut down a number of months ago for kind of like online drug trading, some other weird and scary uh, uh, ventures. Uh, so. So Bitcoin is kind of one of these safe currencies for these, these organizations that happen to be locking up this data, um, and that's, that's kind of the preferred method because, of course, PayPal or you know, general you know, wire transfers aren't exactly the way that most criminals want to deal with, uh, with <laughs> ransoms. Um, uh, we'll get to more basic level. What, what, would you, what would you say are the basic things a small business should do to, to maintain security? Sure. So limiting access um, to the systems that they run on. So what I mean by that is a lot of small businesses, let's, let's take 20 people, for example, as a reasonable size. Um, a lot of small businesses might deploy computers for each of, those or each of those users for the customer if we were maybe managing their systems. And each of those users might have administrative controls over the computer. Um, in the case that a user has full administrative control over the computer, if they download one of those malwares or, piece, or, or attachment files that might contain some sort of virus, that actually opens them up because they do have the administrative privileges. So one basic core tenet of security in general is limit users to the amount of security and the amount of privilege that they need to function in their job role. And what we see happen is companies will give people carte blanche over their, their computer which actually opens them up for a whole litany of, of issues, which include viruses and trojans and, and your usual security risks. That, what else could they do? You, you're on a roll, so keep going. Hey, perfect. So, um, and, and that's really where I think U.S. security fits in. Uh, 
you know, we're a two-factor authentication company, and two-factor is something that's becoming more and more common to you know, the everyday user's lexicon, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Evernote and all these popular services actually offer two-factor authentication. All that means is when you log in with your username and password, um, what two-factor solution would offer is that you would also have to either have something you have or something you are. So uh, something you are is kind of popular and, and, and kind of chic, which is you know, a retina scan or a fingerprint, which we see with the new iPhones. Uh, and the what you have is much more simpler proposition. So your, your phone that you have in your pocket right now, listening, that phone is actually a what you have. And how Duo Security leverages that is we actually send a little notification to your phone that says, you know, hey, this person is trying to log into your account. Should you accept them or deny them? And, of course, if you're logging into your account, you'll hit accept. And, of course, if you wake up at 4 a.m. and it says the uh, person logging into your account is from China, you're probably going to hit deny. Uh, and, and really what this comes down to is just having the secondary step past the passwords because we see passwords getting stolen over and over again. Um, in fact, on 2 million passwords were actually uh, spoken about today on CNN where a company out of Chicago found these on the Internet, 2 million sets of usernames and passwords for Facebook and email accounts and LinkedIn just sitting there waiting for some attacker to take them and use them against people. Well, my God, we've opened we've opened a Pandora's box, and I don't think we can ever close it. <laughs> and that and that's really one of the problems is we have accounts for just about everything. Every single account you have, whether it's an email service or something like Dropbox where you might store your files, um, if it's you know Google for storing a slideshow or a, a spreadsheet, we have accounts for everything. And you know there are certainly good ways to handle passwords, make them stronger. But at the end of the day, if one of these companies get compromised, what recourse does an end user or consumer really have other than layering authentication? Because at the end of the day, if you steal my password, unless you're going to fly to Michigan and take my phone from me, you're still not going to log in, which is the, which is the purpose and the point of two-factor authentication. Well, uh, we've been, uh, we've been uh, seeing... The uh, a trend to bring your own uh, uh, mobile device or bring your own device uh, to, to jobs now. Uh, is that um, exasperating, uh, exasperating, uh, exaggerating the, the situation? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, multiple businesses that I worked for prior to do a security had a bring your own device policy. And I think it's, I think it's realistic both from the physical perspective of, you're not buying phones from every, for every employee, which is always a, you know, a net win for a company. Um, but the other reason is employees themselves have their own personal you know, kind of working environment. If they prefer BlackBerry, why not let them have a BlackBerry? If they prefer an iPhone, have an iPhone. Um, what we're seeing, though, is, and, and what we benefit from at Dual Security, if you can have a device in everyone's hand anyways, and if you can turn on our software with their environment, they're already carrying their second form of identification for that authentication. So we're not actually asking people to have any more headaches or any more um, you know, challenges to really deal with their day-to-day -day work. If they can hit approve or deny, they can still carry on with their job, but carry on in such a manner that we can really trust that who is logging in is actually the person we intended to. And the name of your company again? is Duo Security, D-U-O Security. And the website? 
It's duosecurity.com, and we're based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, if they want to talk to you directly? Sure. Um, so it might, might be a mouthful, but my uh, email address is mstanislaw, so M, S as in Sam, T, A, N as in Nancy, I, S as in Sam, L, A, Z as in Victor, at duosecurity.com. And, of course, if you go to our website and reach out to us, uh, we'll get you to the right person, and we'll see what your, your small business needs in terms of security and try to help you out as best we can. Uh, Mark, your, comp- your, your law firm? Oh, it's John. Uh, John. It's Arm- I'm sorry, it's John. No, that's fine. It's Armstrong Teasdale. Uh, so it's armstrongteasdale.com. And if they wanted to talk to you, because I know I learned a lot tonight from both of you. <clears throat> that would be great. My email address is J, and then it's my last name, Hosman, H-A-S-M as in Monday, A-N as in Nancy, at armstrongteasdale.com. Uh, John, do you have any last words for our audience? No, I, I wish them luck. If they get hit with any of these roaming strikes tomorrow, just remember to keep their cool and don't do anything to exasperate the situation. Mark, any final thoughts? Um, just that, you know, Verizon, who has a great incident response team who deals with Fortune 500 companies all the time, 76% of the breaches that happen against companies involve weaker stolen passwords. So really it comes down to how are you going to strengthen your environment and your company from having these actually impact your company in a negative way. Thank you both for joining us tonight. I, uh, I hope the audience got as much out of it as I did. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.